Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how breakthroughs here are changing our world today and in the future. I'm Steve Fletcher, and in addition to being Professor of Ocean Policy and Economy here at Portsmouth, I'm also Director of the University's Sustainability and the Environment Research Theme. That includes Revolution Plastics, our initiative that's leading the way to tackle the plastics pollution crisis by working with communities, businesses, NGOs, and policymakers. Earlier this month, the UK hosted COP26, the UN's Global Climate Change Conference. Nearly 200 nations came together in Glasgow to discuss the next steps in reaching net zero carbon emissions and limiting global warming to a target of 1.5 degrees Celsius. World leaders mixed with policy influencers, researchers, organisations and the public across two zones to hash out the next steps in decarbonising sectors like energy, transport and the built environment, as well as supporting all nations of the world to meet these challenges. And of course, myself and colleagues from the university were here too, to share our world-leading expertise in these areas and also on protecting our oceans, our world's biggest carbon sink and the seat of precious biodiversity. In this episode of Life Solved, I'll be sharing a little more about the developments at COP26 and hearing from Portsmouth colleagues too. We'll start with Professor Mark Gatterall. Mark is Professor of Sustainable Construction. In our last episode, he explained how thinking systemically about the built environment is key to the decarbonising of the many sectors that overlap in our homes, workplaces and businesses. I asked him what his general impression was of COP26. I think generally encouraging, lots of the right noises being made, lots of passion. Some of the commitments that have been made are encouraging. And I think, you know, we've just about committed enough to help us meet this one and a half degree target that everybody talks about. Certainly if you listen to some people more more expert than me in the general climate science, they're talking that we've committed to doing just about enough. But I think the key thing is how are these commitments translated to action on the ground? So COP, great. Yeah, the the deal, all right, it's been watered down in some key areas, but I think as a statement of intent, it works pretty well and some strong commitments, but ultimately... It will be about how is this translated on the ground. One of the key deals made at COP26 was a commitment to end deforestation by 2030. Notably, Brazil, home to the Amazon rainforest, was one of the key partners signing up to this pledge, as was the Republic of Congo. In fact, 110 nations put their name to the pledge, which adds up to around 85% of the world's forests. In order to meet this goal, nations will need to tackle issues like wildfire and support communities and farmers that have previously relied on clearing forests. They'll also need to reforest and restore damaged areas. Mark shared some other key highlights. One of the other key ones was methane as well. And a particular part of the methane equation, you know, this capping of orphaned oil wells, I mean, just the US is, it's worth something like 3 billion cars a year of, you know, CO2 equivalent. And capping those wells doesn't require behaviour change on our part. It's just someone clearing up the mess that they've left behind. And so a commitment to do that 
all right, again, there are some holes in it and some countries not necessarily playing. But recognizing that, you know, there are things that we can do now that we probably should have done some time ago, but we can get on and do now that will make a material difference. I was very glad to see that. And clearly also the the deal around coal, again, really, unfortunately, it was watered down. But this sort of global understanding of what we need to do coming through in those sorts of commitment, I, I think is a good thing. As I say, it is a real shame it was watered down. And let's again see how that works out over time. But some good, you know, some good, clear commitments, I think. Methane is one of the world's most damaging greenhouse gas emissions. It's generated as a byproduct of landfills, agriculture and the energy industry. Reducing its entry into the atmosphere is vital to limiting warming. The bid to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030 is another landmark deal, although the world's biggest emitters haven't signed up yet. That's China, Russia and India. The watered-down coal deal was another possible glimmer of hope. A late agreement was reached on Saturday after the conference's official end, when nations agreed to phase down rather than phase out coal. Hopefully, this is a clear signal that the age of coal and its harmful emissions is ending. But others were disappointed by the softer wording. We'll be back to Mark in a moment, but let's hear from Dr Cressida Bowyer now. Cresta and the team was at COP26, and she shared her experience of exhibiting in the public access green zone. The city was much quieter than I had expected, and security was really high profile with massive metal fences surrounding the blue and the green zones. I didn't have access to the blue zone, so I can't comment on the atmosphere inside. However, we exhibited in the green zone and it didn't really feel like the buzzy and participatory public space that we were expecting. Perhaps too much had been made of how to access the green zone, how to book tickets and how difficult it would be to move around the city. On the last couple of days, walk-ups were welcomed into the green zone and this is perhaps a reflection of the low numbers on previous days. Cressida explained that there are many scenarios and projections circulating as to whether the commitments made at COP will actually allow us to reach that 1.5 degree target. In her opinion, more needs to be done. The Glasgow Climate Pact failed to set out a clear pathway for keeping 1.5 live. Based on the short-term goals agreed, temperature rises will be 2.4 Celsius or more by the end of this century. The can has truly been kicked down the road for another year and we'll have to wait and see if bolder plans are brought to the table in Egypt. Unsurprisingly, the most moving, eloquent and impactful speeches were those delivered by representatives from countries already under great threat. Vanessa Nakati from Uganda, Elizabeth Watuti from Kenya, Tuvali's foreign minister delivering his speech knee-deep in seawater. And the COP26 agreement recognises the importance of Indigenous people's knowledge and culture in tackling climate change. But the Glasgow agreement urges that Indigenous people and local communities are actively involved in climate action. It doesn't require their informed consent. And climate finance from rich countries to poor countries is still woefully inadequate and falls short of what was previously pledged. 
the urgency of climate change is still not recognised in this document. Intention does not always equate to implementation. Maybe targets need to be mandatory and coupled with legislation. Ultimately, actions are better than words. Some strong words from Cresta there. For me, it was disappointing that the commitments by countries collectively won't immediately get us to a temperature increase of no more than 1.5 degrees. However, what was really important is that the countries agreed to revisit that on an annual basis. The idea being that each year they will revise their commitments such that globally we get on track to make sure our temperature increase is no more than 1.5 degrees. At the summit in Copenhagen 12 years ago, 100 billion US dollars of annual climate finance was pledged to support developing nations to reach their net zero goals and meet the individual challenges of geography, economy and society. It looks like this will now be delivered in 2022 or 2023. Yet it is those developing nations that are often at the raw edge of climate change. With landmark pledges being made against the backdrop of other broken promises, it's clear that a mix of hope and scepticism was in the air at the conference. We asked visitors to the Green Zone what their impressions were of the COP and why they were visiting. Every year, COP becomes ever more important. So COP26 is the most important COP since the beginning. Every COP is a mixture of good news and bad news. And this year is no different. The older generations are doing their best to make pledges. Younger generations are very upset that they haven't made enough pledges. And I just hope that local and international communities can hold on to both, right? There's politics and diplomacy and bureaucracy that needs to happen. There's very real economic realities that people need to deal with, but the urgency is real and so the voices of the young people saying you're not doing enough is also needed. We talk a lot about travel and what we eat and things, but like humans spend 90% of their time in buildings. Hopefully governments will kind of stand up and take notice and, you know, put in place the policies that are needed to kind of drive change in the built environment sector. Because it's almost 40% of global emissions come from the built environment. I work in sustainability, so it's nice to be here and actually be with like-minded people and it's just been an incredible two weeks, to be honest. I'm actually feeling really positive. I know there's been like lots of mixed reviews, but I'm like, do you know what? It can't be anything but a good thing that we've had this, finally, after <laughs> the last year as well. So yeah, I think right now everybody's sort of trying really hard to do something, but everybody's doing a little bit of everything and actually just having some sort of like alignment on what we should actually be doing is probably, if we can get that out of this conference and actually work towards it, then that would be great. Another piece of the jigsaw that's often overlooked in mainstream media is decarbonisation and sustainable development of the built environment. Making sure we change our carbon-emitting cities and buildings in a way that is fair, safe and affordable is key, but complex. I asked Mark whether he felt this had moved further up the agenda. I think where there was, you know, talk about renewable energy technology applied to buildings and some talk about using 
let's call them green alternatives to concrete. But I think for me, it was a little bit disappointing. You know, it has to be about appropriate renewable energy technology on buildings. And so it's not one size fits all. You can't fit an air source heat pump to every house in the country. So we need a more sophisticated conversation around those things. But I think more fundamental than that is that we really need to get to the point where the building, the construction sector proves the performance of the buildings they construct after construction is completed. So they are demonstrating how these things actually perform, not how they think they're going to perform in the design phase, but really how that's going to work in use in practice. And until we get that right, we are going to be missing a trick. And we've got a big problem in the UK with houses not or buildings not performing as they are intended to do. And we need to address that. And that's a real shame that that's missing. And as I say, you know, lots of talk about renewable energy technology is great, but it has to be appropriate technologies. And I didn't see that coming through enough in the conversations. I think, you know, government have to recognise what regulation needs to do to help encourage, let's say, the, the building sector to do the right thing. And also we have a responsibility. We have to be more demanding as consumers to ensure that we're getting the products we think we're getting. We, you know, it doesn't happen in for white goods, electrical white goods or cars. You know, we demand to see some performance data. The tools that we have aren't fit for purpose, so energy performance certificates don't really do the job properly. And we don't get a sense of what level of performance we get in buildings once they're constructed, actually tested post-construction. So it's a mixture, regulation, absolutely, government role, absolutely. But we as consumers need to demand more COP is about so many things that you can't get into the detail in every sector. So I, I don't think people will be particularly better informed about what their choices are. And I think, and this is, again, a bit more of a general comment, but I think also when you think about the conversations that come out of COP, there's lots of talk about China and you know China's impact, but less conversation about how our choices influence what China does. We buy loads of the stuff that China makes and from where the emissions originate. So we have a responsibility. And those sorts of conversations about where our responsibilities lie, where our ability to really affect change comes, even for countries like China, we can influence their behavior by changing how we consume products. And that they, all those conversations sort of get missed a bit, you know. I think that's a real shame because there are things that we could and should be doing. I want to talk a little more about plastics now. Cressida's expertise in using creative methodologies to share information and public health messaging saw her and collaborators walk the green zone with a giant plastic monster costume. Their goal was to engage with the public and have conversations about the impact of plastic waste upon biodiversity loss and its innate link to global warming. Has the link between plastics and climate been made? Well, I was a panel member for a keynote event addressing waste burning, climate and health, and I also attended a number of other fringe events. I would say that the links are being recognised, especially the direct contribution of the plastic life cycle to greenhouse gas emissions. However, the interconnections between the three global crises, pollution, climate and biodiversity, are complex, each exacerbating the other, and we cannot address each in isolation. I do agree with Cressida's comments. 
plastics have not been considered very fully at all as a contributor to climate change in COP26. My view is that it's really vitally important that we recognise it's a contributor in the direct sense of when we make plastics, uh, that generates carbon emissions that contribute to climate change. But plastics also prevent natural systems from being able to cope as well as they should with climate change. Marine pollution, for example, stops the ocean absorbing more carbon. So it prevents the ocean from supporting our response to the climate crisis so fully. And in a way, plastics is often the enabler of carbon emissions too. So plastics in cars and aeroplanes and in convenience goods drives forms of carbon emission that are not really related to plastics directly. But without the plastics, those emissions wouldn't be able to take place. So plastics, in a way, is the entry point for discussing lots of different types of carbon emissions. Plastics are also part of our everyday lives. So it's easier for us, I think, to think about plastics as a form of action we can take to reduce our impact on the climate, maybe driving less or eating a different type of food. So plastics are a really important aspect of climate change and how we take climate action as individuals and in society. What I'd really like to see coming out of the next COP is a much greater focus on plastics and in particular how we could transform the plastics economy to be net zero itself. Plastics are not inherently bad, it's how they're made and what they're made from which makes them a challenge as well as how we dispose of them. So having a net zero plastics industry would be a huge contribution to tackling climate change. I asked Mark what he thinks the steps should be. Now the conference is over and the time for action has arrived. And then one of the key things is getting the mechanisms right to support lower income countries to make a transition away from fossil fuels. So allow them to have a level of economic social development, lift people out of poverty, but do so in a way that reduces their reliance on fossil fuel. And so getting the funding in place, getting the mechanisms in place that support them in doing that, I think are going to be absolutely fundamental to that. And getting a plan in place to actually do the things that people have committed to do, you know, so that methane reduction, you know, forest uh, reforestation of the, do something about it. You know, let's see the plan. And I'm hopeful that if they, you know, start meeting annually or perhaps every two years, you know, that will force people really to get those action plans in place and to start to demonstrate the impact they're having on the ground. Because without that, COP won't have delivered unless we see some change on the ground. It's important to remember climate change and plastic pollution are not just impacts on the planet and habitats and nature. They also affect people in really quite fundamental ways. So extreme heat, extreme cold, greater risk from flooding and hazardous events all impacts people's health and well-being. We know that people are being forced to migrate by changing weather patterns as a result of climate change, which of course affects their health and well-being as well. And so it was surprising that COP26 didn't really have a focus on how taking climate action 
also is about supporting people's health as well as their security in terms of having safe and secure places to live and places to work. Climate change and climate action is essentially taking action to protect people's livelihoods and protect people's health as well as protecting the planet. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Life Solved. Hopefully, it's helped you reflect on the commitments made at COP26 and the different responses people are having to what that means for our climate future. One thing does seem to be an agreement from every conversation I've had. Now is the time for increasing action and momentum towards reaching the goals we have set. As nations, that simply won't be possible without collaboration, consistent finance and participation from every layer of society. We need our governments to take the lead so that we as consumers can access information and services and make choices that support net zero carbon emissions and place a limit on global warming. But there are actions we can all take today from choosing sustainable businesses and products to asking questions about the supply of the resources we use and reassessing our consumption of single-use plastics for starters. If you'd like to learn more, you can find out about Revolution Plastics and other University of Portsmouth research at the website port.ac.uk forward slash research or follow us on Twitter at UOP Plastics.